It's good to see all of you here uh, this morning. Rain's a little better than snow and ice, right? Cherubim and seraphim falling down uh, before thee. What a, what a great line and a great, and a great hymn. Um, but I, I want to suggest that we are quite confused about those angelic beings. You see, quite often I will attend a funeral where someone, maybe the pastor or, or someone talking about the deceased, maybe giving the eulogy, will suggest that everything is okay because the departed is now an angel in heaven. God needed... Another, by the way, anytime you start a sentence with God needed, you're already in heresy, so you can stop. God needed another angel, and so He took our loved one away. They are now watching over us as some kind of guardian angel. Now, now I get the idea the loved one was so special, so kind, so sweet, that he or she must be, now be an angel because of our touched-by-an-angel view of angels. Maybe we have this mental picture of becoming angels ourselves, complete with white robes, wings, halos, and harps floating around on some clouds when we get to heaven. I actually have several significant problems with the idea that people become angels. First, to state the obvious, it is clearly unbiblical. Nowhere does the Bible suggest that people become angels upon their deaths and ascent to heaven. Think about it. The corresponding truth would be if they don't go to heaven, then on their descent, they must become demons, fallen angels. And some of you go, yeah, what's, I can think of people. Second, listen very carefully. For a person to become an angel would be a demotion. Now, what, what do I mean? When humanity was created, as we saw last week, they were made for a little while lower than angels. And the truth is, when we die, we don't become angels as if equal to angels. No. Remember, angels are simply servants. We saw at the end of chapter 1 of Hebrews, ministering servants sent to render service for the sake of those who would inherit salvation. Further, we, through the gospel, have become children of God. So, if we become angels when we die, we go from being children to servants. That's a demotion in my book. Now, why, you ask, do you get so bothered about this? Because I believe this false, unbiblical thinking horribly diminishes and demeans the work of Christ on His cross. Christ did not humble Himself in the incarnation to become a man, to die for sinners, to make us servants. He died for sinners created in the image of God to make us sons and daughters of the living God. Why would you want to be an angel? Which brings us to a third objection. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, is for people, not for angels. Think about that. There were angels like people who rebelled against God and God cast them out of heaven 
no hope of redemption for them. Second Peter 2 says that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, into pits of gloomy darkness, reserved for judgment. That's what awaits them. See, angels were not created in the image of God, and the gospel is not for them. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. So, as to this salvation, the, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to, to you, to, made careful searches and inquiries, want to know the person of the time, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he, the Spirit of Christ, in, indicated, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves only as the idea, but you, in, in these things which now have been announced to you, follow along now, been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. But the implication is they cannot. Angels cannot look into this gospel, which we enjoy, because it was not for them. They can only view it from afar, but they cannot experience it. The gospel, you see, is for humanity, people created in the image of God. So for those reasons and many more, sorry, I want to, I'm actually not sorry, I want to correct this idea that at death, people are demoted to being servants or angels. No, rather, we receive glory in His presence as sons and daughters of God. That is where we are headed, okay? Know that. If you're thinking you're going to get some wings, not going to happen. This is where we are headed, to the glory reserved for children of God. The author of Hebrews makes this point abundantly clear in our continuing study of this rather great book. Let me remind you of, of the context, the flow of the overall book in chapters 1 and, and 2. There were believers being persecuted, opposed for their new faith uh, for their new Christian faith. M- martyrdom was right around the corner. So they were understandably concerned, even perhaps disillusioned. This, this new faith isn't working too well for us. Some were considering quitting, going back to their old way of life, their old religion, which for Jewish believers was Judaism. Others had already quit. So the author of Hebrews writes to both encourage and frankly warn them. His warnings are, are quite severe. Don't drift, don't go back. Listen, there's nothing... To go back to. His encouragements are quite strong as well. Jesus is better. He'll spend the rest of the book demonstrating that Jesus is better than what? Fill in the blank. He's better. The new covenant and the gospel that he came to bring is better, it's greater, it's superior to the old covenant. The old covenant is fulfilled in the new covenant. You remember, he started chapter 1 saying God spoke to our fathers in the past, long ago, through the prophets. But now, but, but, but now he has spoken to us most fully, most completely, most gloriously, not through prophets, through his very son. But then, it, and then he spends the rest of, of chapter 1 proving that the son is superior to angels, Remember, angels mediated the old covenant, but Jesus brought the new covenant. 
And in fact, Jesus is sovereign, creator, ruler, savior. Angels are called to worship him. Further, angels are, are sent to be ministers to those, again, who would inherit salvation. That is to people. Angels are servants. Why would you want to be a servant when you can be a child of God? We got to chapter 2, and the author launched into his first warning. Because Jesus and his gospel are superior, don't drift. How, how are we going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? D don't drift, brothers and, and sisters. Endure. Persevere. It is eternally worth it. It's glorious. And then last week, the author returned to this Having taken that aside to warn them, he returned to this superiority of Jesus over the angels. Listen, God did not subject the world to come to angels. No. He appointed humans, human beings, to rule over his creation. But we have a problem. We blew it. We strayed from God's original commands, and, and we don't see all things subject to humanity, do we? Oh, oh no. But, 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 but good news. We do see Jesus uh, and the promise to humanity to rule over God's creation is ultimately and perfectly, don't miss this, is ultimately and perfectly fulfilled in him. A and we, as children of God, are also to be crowned with glory and honor in him. But it took the work of Christ to make that happen. We see Jesus made for a little while lower than, than his servants. Made for a little while lower than the angels so that he might taste death for everyone and become the solution to humanity's problem. Namely, sin. I, I review all of that to remind you of this rather critical context because we're going to arrive at a passage this morning that is, uh, is, is confusing. I'm just going to tell you right now, um, you can do one of two things this morning. You might as well go ahead and take a nap or decide to listen because this is really deep stuff. Jesus is superior to angels. He was made lower than the angels for a little while to redeem those created in the image of God to bring many sons and daughters to glory for which they were originally intended anyway. Because, you see, they share the same family paternity, the same source, namely the, the Father. And, and the Son is in the process of redeeming and sanctifying people. Now, listen, not to become angels, but, but God glorifying, God reflecting children of God. That's the context of our passage. Look at it with me. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 10 to 13, but let's start reading in verse 9 to make sure that we get capture that context. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are, uh, are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect 
the author of their salvation through sufferings. Does that bother you? Jesus was perfected. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, source, family, humanity, lots of discussion about that. Literally just says, are all from one. The father's in the italics, it's not there. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, brothers. Just don't just, don't just read over that. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This passage is a bit challenging and it requires a very close, careful examination. But through it, we see the truth that Jesus suffered in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory, and which is what, which, which is what we were intended for anyway. And with them, He shares the same paternity and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Then the author goes on to quote some Old Testament passages. Of course, that's what he does all the time to support his position. At the outset, let me encourage you with this truth. Jesus paid an enormous price to save us, to make us not servants, not angels, but brothers and sisters and the very children of God. So this, so this idea that we become angels when we die is not only wrong, it is dreadfully, horribly wrong. His whole point is the superiority of Jesus over angels and the new covenant over the old covenant, which makes us children, restores us to our rightful, not to our rightful, but restores us to the place for which we were intended not servants, children of God. Let me outline the text for you. The pioneer of our salvation, the purpose of our salvation, and then the proof of our paternity where he quotes those Old Testament texts. So, so follow along with me. Starting with the pioneer of our salvation. Your translations may have it author or leader or founder. Most agree that the best translation is pioneer, trailblazer. The idea is that Jesus blazed a trail pioneered a trail um, which others may follow, namely in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Notice the author starts the verse with a conjunction for tying it to what went before in verse 9, actually all the way back to verses 6 to 8, which is a quote, remember, of, of Psalm 8. We see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels, but by the grace of God, through his suffering of death, so through that, he might taste death, experience death for everyone. Why? For, see the conjunction, it was fitting for him. Well, who, who's him? 
Well, the, the one for whom are all things and through whom are all things. And you immediately go, oh, I know that's Jesus, right? Because that's what we saw back in verse 2. But it's not Jesus. So obviously, as we go through the rest of the verse, this one is perfecting the Son. We'll get to that in a minute. It's obviously talking about God the Father. So wait, wait a minute. I thought the author suggested Jesus was the one through whom all things are made. Yes, he did. You see, it is not a problem for the authors of Scripture to recognize the triune God was involved in creation. God, the triune God, created, and Jesus was the primary agent of creation, the one through whom all things were created. But now to say the same thing of the Father, no problem for this author because we serve a triune God, all involved. It was fitting for the Father in bringing many sons to glory. Stop right there. I want you to understand that this whole thing, everything that he's been talking about, this creation and fall and recreation, or excuse me, redemption and recreation was for the purpose of God's glory in bringing many people, sons and daughters, also to glory, to share in His glory, rejoicing in and reflecting His glory, which is what we were created to do in the first place before we blew it. So He engages in this process, again, not to make us servants, but to make us sons and daughters. That's what was promised, you see, back in Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honor. But we don't see it, do we? Not yet. But God is not finished yet. So since this was the plan from before the foundation of the world, that God's people would be crowned with glory and honor, ruling over the work of His hand, resulting in God's glory and our own glory with Him, it was fitting, proper, appropriate to perfect the pioneer of their salvation through sufferings. It's a mouthful, I know. Are you, are you still with me? Are you still thinking? Let's break it down. What does it mean when he says, when he suggests that Jesus was perfected? That, I don't know about you, but that seems like a problem for me. What do you mean Jesus was perfected? Wasn't he already perfect as God in the flesh? Are there not other passages in the Scripture, especially in Hebrews, which say that Jesus was sinless and therefore the perfect, perfect sacrifice for us? Yes. But in His humanity, Jesus became the perfect Savior, the perfect high priest through His sufferings. That's why He was the perfect high priest, because He was perfected made complete through his sufferings. He will be the one, because of his sufferings, he will become the perfect intercessor and priest, that is mediator for those who also suffer. Remember, the author is trying to encourage his readers. That includes us. In the midst of our sufferings, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He was perfected, that is, made the perfect high priest through those sufferings to be able to, to assist us. The last verse of this chapter says that very thing. For since he himself... Jesus was tempted in that which he also 
suffered, he is able to come to the aid of you who are tempted. Now, we're going to look at that next week. But here's the question that I have for you this week. Are you struggling right now? Struggling in your humanity? <laughs> struggling with being a person? Struggling with the, the, the challenges of your humanity? Jesus knows. And he is there to walk with you through it because he did perfectly. So indeed, it was fitting for God to perfect his son, that is to make his son complete, the perfect high priest, through his sufferings for those who would likewise suffer. Which brings us to our second point, the purpose. So this is the, that's the description of the pioneer. But what's the purpose of our salvation? Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. Again, father, family, source, humanity. Some even suggest all from one Adam. Speaking of Jesus' humanity. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, the word sanctify simply means to make holy. It is the process by which believers, having been justified, are then being sanctified. That is, having been declared righteous, having our sins removed, and having received the righteousness of Christ, we are given the Spirit and begin a process of becoming more holy, of becoming like Jesus. We are declared holy. Now, (laughs) God affects change in us so that we become holy. That's sanctification. Now, the one who sanctifies is obviously Jesus, since He is from the one Father, Those who are sanctified or being made holy are us. That is, those who have believed in Jesus. And since we are all from the same, I'll go with this translation, Father. Stop right there. What does this mean, we are all from the same Father? Well, it's obvious, it's obvious that Jesus is from the Father, right? He's he's God the Son. And we speak of God the Father. It's obvious He's from the Father. But a couple of other thoughts. How is it that we are from the Father? First thought, it is true that there is a sense in which since God is God, the creator and ruler of all, that He is the source or the, I'll say it gently, softly, the Father of all. But Jesus makes clear in a conversation He had with some Pharisees in John chapter 8 that since they were in rebellion and continued rebellion against the Father... They were unbelievers. They were not of their father, God. They were of their father who? Yeah, you don't even want to say it. The the devil. So also here, God is the father of the son and the father of those who believe and are being sanctified. In other words, there is a sense. I'm going to say this very gently. There is a sense in which it is wrong to say, well, we are all children of God. We aren't. We aren't. It is only those who believe. Which leads to a second idea. Having believed, we who are children of God are adopted into the family whereby we can call God Abba. We all all know those verses. But here's the question. Why are we adopted? Because of God's great love for us through His Son. Ephesians 1 says it this way. He predestined us, 
true adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It is because of Jesus and His work that we are adopted. One said it this way. Let this sink in. We are, not, uh, we are not His brothers and sisters because we are children of God. We are children of God because we are His brothers and sisters. Do, do you see the difference? One other, another author says it this way. We find sonship in Him, for He is the Son. The adopted sons have this privilege in the eternal Son. To bring saved men into a family relation to God required a Savior standing in that relationship Himself. Hence, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son that we might receive the adoption of sons. And we receive the adoption through Christ, through His finished work, becoming His sons, I mean, becoming His brothers and sisters by which we are adopted into the family of God. Never thought of it that way. So when this author suggests that the one who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are being sanctified because they have been saved or justified, we are, we are together, we are together incredibly sons, of God, sons and daughters of God with Jesus. For this reason, and this is his point, for this reason, he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, that's you, brothers and sisters. Let that sink in. This is an incredible statement. Jesus, in the incarnation, took on human flesh to die for the sins of His people, and in doing so, He becomes the pioneer, the trailblazer of our salvation through incredible suffering. But, but, but since we now share the same Father, He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Will you think about that? The God of the universe has done His work to redeem us, to call us into the family such that we can actually call Jesus our Lord, elder, brother. It doesn't give us permission to be flippant about that. Every once in a while, I'll talk about Jesus is my homeboy. Or Jesus is my best friend. Or Jesus is my brother. Some of that is true. But it is incredibly, unbelievably true that the God of the universe would call me and you brother, sister. To be clear, we are sons and daughters of God in verse 10. We are Jesus' brothers and sisters in verse 11, meaning, again, we do not become angels. We don't, do not become servants. That would be a demotion. No, we become family members. The author's point, why then would you leave? Why would you drift? Why would you neglect the salvation? Why would you even consider leaving this incredible family relationship? Let me take an important aside here just because one of my authors did and I kind of liked it. One author um, suggested that we as Christians start seeing ourselves a bit differently. 
We are children of God. We are in this room brothers and sisters in Christ. People have always identified themselves by their ethnicity, their nationality, their skin color, their social status, their economic stability or instability, instability usually through their occupation, on and on, the divisions and the prejudices and the racism and the nationalism goes. But we are children of God, and those things no longer matter. The author writes, you are not foremost a white person or a black person or a brown person, but a new creature in the new humanity created by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why it is the Christian community that is best uh, able to transcend the barriers of human existence, for we are one in Christ and no longer what we were before. God has created a new humanity, breaking down the barriers that once divided us. Our new identity in Christ as brothers and sisters is infinitely more important than what this world holds on to desperately to divide us, and we're seeing it elevated in our culture today. It should not be among brothers and sisters. It does not matter a flip what color you are, what nationality you are, what ethnicity you are, all of those things that I listed. What matters is that we are followers together of Jesus Christ. The author, end aside, I just wanted to say those words. The author then goes on, as he usually does, to prove his point by quoting Old Testament Scripture, which brings us to our last point, the proof of our paternity, our new family relationship. He quotes Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. Psalm 22 first, there in verse 12 of our text. Psalm 22 is clearly seen as a messianic psalm. From the earliest days of the church, Jesus, you see, quotes the first verse of Psalm 22 while he's hanging on the cross in both Matthew and Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse. In the psalm, David then goes on to talk about his personal suffering. But then, but it reads like a newspaper of the crucifixion. As such, there are several verses quoted in the, in the New Testament referring to this crucifixion account. Read it. Go home and read Psalm 22, the first 21 verses. It feels like you're reading about the crucifixion, how the soldiers did, gambled for his garments, how he was pierced, things, things like that. Clearly, it is a messianic psalm talking about Jesus' suffering um, on the cross. But the psalm gets to verse 22 and makes a sudden right turn. It makes a switch. And that's the verse that is quoted here. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. At the end of his suffering, confident that God will deliver him, David says, I will praise you, God, before my Jewish brothers is the idea. Here in Hebrews 2, Jesus becomes the speaker and says at the end of his suffering, having accomplished his divine purpose for redeeming his people, Jesus says, I will proclaim Claim your name to my brothers and sisters. That's us. 
But then very interestingly, he goes on. The psalm goes on. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Remember, the author is... I've told you, he likes to quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the word for congregation is the word ecclesia. If you know Spanish, you know that's the word for what? Church. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Confident of God's deliverance, that is through the resurrection and exaltation to the Father's right hand, crowned with glory and honor, in the midst of the church. The son will lead his family in praise to the triune God who has affected our deliverance, our salvation. This is hard for me to wrap my mind around. I have never noticed this verse this way before. This was shocking to me this week. Have you ever stopped to think that Jesus is leading his church in worship of the triune God of which he is a part? Have you ever stopped to think that our worship, our corporate worship, and he does say the word sing praise, uh, so I'm going to apply it there. Our corporate worship is much more significant than what we like and what pleases us. It is about the great God that we worship, even led by the great God we worship. Have you ever stopped to think about that? That Jesus leads our corporate worship Charles Spurgeon says this, when we pray on earth, our prayers are not alone, but our great high priest is there to offer our petitions with his own. When we sing on earth, it is the same. Is not Jesus Christ in the midst of the congregation gathering up the notes which come from our sincere lips to put them into the golden censer and to make them rise as precious incense before the throne of the infinite majesty? Oh, my. I've never thought of it that way. It seems to me this brings a whole new perspective on our corporate worship. Perhaps, perhaps just suggesting that our worship should not be, as it occasionally is, as self-centered and blasé as it is. Jesus is leading us. Next two verses are quoted in verse 13. Next two Old Testament verses are quoted in verse 13 come from Isaiah 8, which interestingly come between two Messianic chapters. In Isaiah 7, we read of the prophecy of the virgin to give birth to a son. In chapter 9, uh, we read that the son's name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the chapter that is sandwiched in between them is chapter 8. I did the math for you there quickly. Between 7 and 9 is 8. Um, and he quotes verses 17 and 18. But what is the context of these chapters, specifically these verses that he quotes? Judah, in beginning Isaiah, was facing challenge from the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. Things were very dire. They were facing severe opposition. Does this sound familiar? Maybe this is why he quoted the text. But God promises deliverance. And the assurance of that deliverance will come in the birth of a son to Isaiah. In fact, he will have two sons, which are signs of God's faithfulness and the promise of deliverance in the midst of opposition. <laughs> Therefore, Isaiah says, I will put my trust in him. And not just me, but the children God has given me. 
In, in Hebrews, the author quotes these verses and puts them on the lips of Jesus. In the midst of his suffering, he says, I will trust in God, but not only me, but the children that God has given me. You should know this is the only place in the New Testament where believers are called children of Jesus. That's interesting. Usually, we are called brothers and sisters. The, the point he is making in quoting that text is that we are family members with Jesus. And just as he, j- those words are on Jesus' lips, just as he trusted God in the midst of his opposition, in the midst of his suffering, so also should his children. That's the point. Follow the flow in these chapters. Jesus is infinitely superior to angels. So don't drift or or neglect this great salvation that he brought. Don't go back to the the old covenant mediated by angels. The, The old covenant pointed to the necessity of and fulfillment of the new covenant in Jesus. After all, God did not subject the the world to come to angels. No, he subjected it to humanity. But there was this problem, namely our sin, such that we don't see all things subjected to humanity yet. So Jesus, it took Jesus to be made like us so that he could accomplish what we failed to accomplish. And by tasting death for everyone, he will bring many sons and daughters to glory, which is where we were intended to be. That requires our justification and our ongoing sanctification, this process of being made holy. And since the one who sanctifies and the, one, the ones sanctified are of one father, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and s- sisters That is what he came to do, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Through the gospel, he proclaims God's name. That is, he proclaims his character, his gospel, to his brothers and sisters in the congregation, in the church, in the midst of opposition. He will lead us in trust of God. Are you beginning to see how much better Christ is than angels? Further. Are you beginning to see how much better your eternal hope is than just rising to be a mere angel? Brothers and sisters, you are children of God. That's why he came. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I know that is a ton of information. As I study the book of Hebrews, I'm often weekly amazed at the depth of this author's brilliance, his wisdom, certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we peel back layer after layer and it just causes our heads to swim. But the truth is, Jesus brought the new covenant, the gospel, so that we could be redeemed and sanctified, so that we could be restored in our relationship with you, not as servants, but as children to ultimately be crowned with glory, your glory, not our own, and honor, reflecting your glory, rejoicing in who you are, God of the universe, and incredibly, Jesus, our brother. In his name we pray, amen.